It is um, the first Sunday after Easter. And our text for the first Sunday after Easter comes, as it turns out, from the first first Sunday after Easter, a long, long time ago. Angels are trumpeting onto the scene. You can just picture it. Or maybe not. Tombs are busting open, the good book says. The curtain that once once separated all of heaven from all of earth, symbolized by that great heavy curtain in the temple, has now been torn right in half, and heaven is spilling out into the street. And Jesus himself is appearing to Mary outside the tomb on Easter morning, to Cleopas and a friend on the road to Emmaus later in the day, and then to a cluster of disciples that later that resurrection evening. James Dunn, that great New Testament scholar, describes what he calls the massive realism of this string of post-resurrection events. But now a week has come and gone. The disciples are still gathered in Jerusalem, it would seem. Still in Jerusalem, the door is still closed, it seems. And there is still, it seems, to be fear in the room. And maybe a lot of unresolved grief. And maybe some doubting, it seems. For all of the astounding report that we've been hearing these last days since last Sunday, it's not yet clear how all of this is going to turn out for that cluster of disciples personally in that room on that day. I want to focus on one of them this morning. It's not going to be a surprise to you. Uh, I want to focus on the fellow that we have come to know as Doubting Thomas. We don't know a lot about this Thomas. Maybe you'll remember hearing about him from time to time in the book of John, but not often. He's appeared only twice. And on both occasions, he appears just a little bit, I don't know what the word is, maybe kind of cranky. In chapter 11, Jesus sets out to the home of Lazarus. You can picture that scene maybe. And probable confrontation with those nasty scribes and Pharisees who mean to do them harm. And Thomas offers helpfully, okay, fellows, we may as well go with them and die and get it over with. That's a a paraphrase. Or again in chapter 14, Jesus uh, explains that he is on his way to the Father's house to prepare a place for the disciples and then to bring them there to be with him. To which Thomas responds somewhat Honestly, maybe a bit cranky. Anything you say, Jesus. But as for me, I'm going to need a better map than I've gotten from you so far. And now here in chapter 20, the same sour, quirky, somewhat uh, angular fellow Thomas. Here is uh, Thomas, the one step behind, running late for the most important things in life. Most of us have been there sometime or another, late to meet the Savior, late to come to faith. Here is Thomas, known as the twin, we are told, the kind of fellow that kind of faded into the background, always known as the other guy's brother. Maybe you felt like that sometimes, too, always in the shadow of somebody else and uh, competing for a place of your own. And here is Thomas, who we have come to know as, a, as the doubter. <clears throat> we find him uh, in today's text gone all huffy and self-important 
like we sometimes do when uh, you know, we've come upon what we consider an especially clever doubt. You can believe whatever you like, he tells his friends. As for me, I'm not going to believe unless it's on my terms. So there. There's a lot to like about the men. We've come to know a bit more about Thomas in the years that have followed the first, first Sunday after Easter. Eusebius in the third century reports that Thomas really got around and become some kind of a folk hero, some kind of a really, really famous in those days. The Church of India looks to Thomas as its founder, maybe you already know. He made his way to the Malabar coast, we're told, in AD 52, and established a string of Christian communities in what's today called Kerala State. I've been in some of these communities, and uh, still to this day they call themselves Thomasine or Thomasite. There are Anglicans there too. There's an Anglican church that's called the Thomasine Anglican Church, and they date themselves. I don't know how that works. I don't know the Anglicanism went that far, but. Throughout the Middle East, in fact, and Southern Asia, you'll find churches that believe themselves founded by Thomas. Some scholars believe that he reached India before his death. The Church of Indonesia remembers a visit from Thomas. Even in our hemisphere, there's a tradition among the Waurani people of Paraguay, I've been to visit some of those people, who maintain that, uh, the Th that Thomas the Apostle came to them and set up a stone chair by Iguazu Falls and preached the good news. <laughs> Okay, sometimes we need to take our legends with a grain of salt, even Anglicans. <laughs> Thomas was martyred in AD 72 in Mylapore. You can visit his tomb near the center of modern-day Chennai. So here's the question that I'd like to put to the text for today. What happened? What made Thomas the doubter, the grieving, the fearful, into Thomas you know, like the international missionary rock star. Four observations. First of all, Thomas shows up. I mean, like, it's not always observed, but it's an important detail in this text. Thomas, like, he just shows up. We don't know why he was absent the first time around, a week before. Locked away, I suppose, in his personal grief and doubt. I don't doubt, but now he, but now he shows up again. Let me tell you a secret about doubt and about grief, and about uh, that kind of dark area in our lives, it's not often resolved in the closet. Well, maybe for St. John of the Cross, or you could work things out on your own, I suppose. But for most all of us, most all of the time, we need one another. When I doubt, as I do sometimes, you, you can carry me. When you doubt, maybe I'll carry you. When I grieve, maybe you'll grieve with me. Maybe you'll come a long way to grieve with me. Doubt and fear and grief are not often healed by individual willpower. They're carried in the company of believers. As a matter of fact, you might say that the company of believers is the natural environment for grief and for doubt. That's where doubt belongs. We uh, modern Americans have become the most individualistic society that the world has ever known. We've come to believe that the most important decisions in life must be taken individualistically. And the more important we consider the decision to be, 
the more individualistic we think it should be. We think this way from about everything from marriage to careers to so-called lifestyles and to faith. But this is simply nonsense. And you don't have to travel far outside of the United States to realize how kind of aberrant it is in the world's cultures. The most important decisions in life, as almost all the world knows, are corporate decisions. They're collective decisions taken with the information and cross-fertilization of the company of human family in which we find ourselves. Faith, too, is a corporate reality. It's more than like brave, bravely raising your hand in an evangelistic campaign, although some of us have done that. It's worked into our lives in the company of believers. This is what the great tradition is all about that Father Rick sometimes talks about. It's doubting Thomas and bumbling Peter standing at the side of Mary the Magdalene, the Tower of Faith, and all the rest of the company. And together they remember the promises. They affirm one another in Christian life and faith and build a great tradition. You can see the great tradition emerging in our text from the Acts today. I say to you with confidence, Peter says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. But he heard that language first from Mary. It's important to show up Doubts and bumbles and all. Belonging precedes believing often enough. Secondly, Jesus shows up. Now, I want to suggest to you that Jesus shows up in this text in more or less, in some way similar to the way that he shows up in Anglican churches all around the world. <laughs> he speaks. Okay, there, there are, there's the walking through walls bit. That's true. We don't see that so much anymore. But the focus of his presence is his word in this text and in all the post-resurrection events. Here we find him saying, peace to you. It's the first words out of his resurrected mouth. Peace to you. And then he repeats it in verse 21 <clears throat> and again in verse 26 in case they didn't catch the drift. This is something more than simply saying, okay there, hi there. It's, it's more than simple greeting. Jesus wants the disciples, and Thomas I think in particular, to remember the peace, the very special peace that he had promised them all along, and to see it now fulfilled. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, he said in chapter 14, and again in chapter 16. <clears throat> this is the peace of the kingdom. Death conquered, sin resolved, wholeness restored, all things made new in Jesus. <clears throat> this is the peace, as the great Chrysostom said, by which he does, undoes all evil things and gives us all good things. Super, super comprehensive. It's useful to notice that there's no verb here in this greeting, a detail that's not always captured in, in English trans, translations. We have instead just a simple juxtaposition of a pair of powerful verbs. Peace on the one hand and you on the other. Peace and you. You might translate it peace to you. Translators sometimes feel the need to supply a verb when they come across things like this. And then you wind up with translations that say something like, may you have peace. 
or I hope you find peace somehow, something like that. But there is no verb here. There's nothing aspirational, you see, in Jesus' resurrection greeting. Something to hope for or something to aspire to, something that might require a verb, you might say. The peace of the kingdom is not something that we wish for one another or even for ourselves. It is something that we, first of all, declare. In two minutes, you're going to come and you're going to hear something very similar when you come forward to the table if you come. When you come, you'll open your hand and receive the bread. Listen carefully. You won't hear, I promise you, you won't hear anything that you need to do or you need to make happen. You'll hear a simple, non-aspirational statement of God's own truth, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. <laughs> to you, declared and freely given, freely received. This is the way Jesus always shows up. It is true that Jesus invited Thomas to touch his wounds. We're not told, however, that he did. Most commentators, especially in the last thousand years or so, feel that he didn't and that the gospel word apparently was sufficient. It's like Jesus said, Thomas, listen to me. I'm really here. It is really me. I'm really here for you. Let it be enough. By his word of grace and power, he reaches into our doubt and our grief and our fears and reveals himself as redeemer of doubters, specifically, healer of the grieving, light for all the darkness that we can possibly muster as a statement like of heaven's own fact. Third observation, Jesus breathes on them. Breathing, of course, is mentioned in the first appearance on Easter Sunday itself, but you can, you can, just, you can just imagine that Jesus was still breathing on the second, the second Sunday too. Here John wants us to think of creation. John wants us to remember how God the Father breathed life into lumps of clay at the beginning of the world. Yeah? Jesus now breathes life once again into these latter-day lumps. He breathes a new creation into them. He gives them a new identity, new power and purpose. He turns them into believers like in spite of themselves. The Holy Spirit now equips them with the power of the gospel. They can declare the forgiveness of sins to one another just as Jesus did, and not as aspirations, but as heaven's own reality. The Holy Spirit sends them into the world as Jesus himself was sent, not on their own steam, but as heaven's own ambassadors. They are transformed and then sent out to transform the world. Eusebius reports that the gospel, that the apostles made assignments among themselves some were assigned to the Black Sea, some to the Arabian Peninsula. Thomas was assigned to Persia, uh, what is today Iran, <clears throat> and then to Malabar, to India, and there we go. Finally, the fourth observation, Thomas finds in Jesus, my Lord and my God, he says. And here we come actually to the climax of the whole passage. It was like Thomas saying, Jesus, you win, I give up. I receive you, you can have me. Here, in fact, we find the climax of John's entire Christology, the high point, in fact, of the entire New Testament witness to, the, to, the, to Jesus and Nazareth. And it comes from the mouth of the doubter. 
one of the deepest theological assertions found anywhere in the Bible. Thomas makes it clear that you can address Jesus in the same language with which Israel addressed Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim, my Lord and my God. He sees in Jesus, you might say, the second person of the Trinity. And you might say that here, specifically Christian faith is born on this occasion. By the time the story was written into the Gospel of John, many years had passed. Fewer and fewer folk remember Jesus personally. Now we read in the Gospel text, they believe who have not seen, and that's where we come in. We show up. Maybe you open the Bible and lay it on your knees to see what happens. Maybe you muster a prayer that you can hardly find the words. Maybe you come to the table. You just kind of show up. Secondly, Jesus shows up. We hear him speak to our hearts and he says, peace to you, life to you, my body and my blood to you. And in the bargain, we're created all anew. Listen to this from 1 Peter. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So finally, I, want to, I, need, I feel the need to offer a footnote with respect to, to Malabar. You will be pleased to know that that particular assignment is already taken. Thomas, uh, Thomas beat you to it. There are tens of millions of Christians in that part of the world. They're sending missionaries already to all around the world. And it may not be that you're interested in becoming an international missionary rock star anyway. We have to be realistic about these things, right, Father Eric? But that doesn't mean that Malabar has somehow gone away. If you permit me just to go a little metaphorical, maybe you know someone who needs to hear a word of forgiveness. There you'll find your Malabar. Maybe you know a neighbor who could benefit from a touch of Christian love, yes? There you might find the Malabar Coast. As the Father has sent me, after all, Jesus said, so I am sending you, doubters, bumblers, and all. I have no better conclusion for uh, this, uh, these reflections than John's own conclusion, and with that I'll close. Jesus did lots of stuff, verse 30 and 31, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book or related here today. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen.